This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Now you've joined us at the fourth episode in our series of England at the World Cup. A series that tracks how the Three Lions performed at the biggest tournament in international football. Now if you've missed any of the previous episodes, they and all the other usual Three Lions podcasts can be found at threelionspodcast.com or your chosen podcast provider. You can go back to the early tournaments episode, the one where we looked at 1930, 34 and 38, and also 1950 and 1954 can be found in that first chapter. They were the first two World Cups England participated in. Then... We looked at 1958 in Sweden in detail with the assistance of Blackburn Rovers legend and former Three Lion himself, Brian Douglas. And then he joined me again to tell us about Chile in 1962. Again, a tournament like Sweden, one that he played in. But here we are, we've made it to the swinging 60s, the holy grail, 1966. I shouldn't really need to tell you, but just in case, and without giving too much away, this episode has a happy ending, and I'm pleased to say I'm joined by an England fan who was there. More of that to come, but let's set the scene some 56 years ago. 1966 was the eighth World Cup tournament to take place and was, of course, the first to take place on our own home soil. England was chosen as the host nation by FIFA on the 22nd of August 1960 and this was over bids by both West Germany and Spain. Brazil, as we know from the previous episode, were the holders winning it in Chile in 1962 so along with England as hosts, didn't have to qualify. The trophy back then was the Jules Rimet trophy, a gold trophy with the winged female figurine said to be the Greek goddess of victory, Nike, holding up a ten-sided cup. Prior to the tournament, the trophy was stolen, although fortunately found four months before the finals by a black-and-white collie dog called Pickles. It was a tournament that ran from the 11th to the 30th of July and was played across seven English host cities. Sunderland's Roker Park, Middlesbrough's Ayrson Park, Everton's Goodison Park, Manchester United's Old Trafford, Sheffield Wednesday's Hillsborough, Aston Villa's Villa Park and there were two stadiums in London. There was the White City Stadium and of course Wembley Stadium which would host the final. In previous episodes, we've taken a look at the World Cup posters, which we'll do that in a moment, but we can't mention that without mentioning the World Cup mascot. 
Because this, 1966, was the tournament when they were first introduced. World Cup Willy was the first mascot of its kind to be associated with a major tournament. Willy was a lion wearing a Union Jack top and was seen in a variety of poses, either kicking the ball or holding the trophy. And he was designed by children's book illustrator Reg Hoy from Marlowe. And Willy would appear on everything in the run-up to the tournament. Tea trays, beer mats, bedspreads, to name just a few. Now the poster. There he was, in the corner, kicking a ball high into the air. Although there was also another prominent poster that had all the stadium venues to be used. Plus a ball on that was made to resemble a rosette. And around that ball, where the scrunched ribbon should be, were the flags of all the participating nations. It was a tournament that at the time had a record 70 nations trying to qualify, although 31 African nations boycotted it because they objected to where it was being held and was the only time an entire continent has boycotted the tournament. And they'd done it because they weren't happy with the structure of qualifying, of which 10 teams would be from Europe four from Latin America, one from Central America and the Caribbean region, which left the last spot to be fought over by Africa, Asia and Oceania. Africa objected and boycotted, and eventually North Korea, of all nations, found themselves in the finals after beating Australia 9-2 on aggregate. It was their first finals as it would be Portugal's and Switzerland's. Switzerland, having reached the quarter-finals three times previously, 1966 would be their last World Cup for 28 years, and that would be when a certain Roy Hodgson took them to USA 94. As with the 1962 tournament, it was 16 qualified nations divided into four groups of four, And back then, it was two points for a win and one for a draw. The England squad, now managed by Alf Ramsey, he would pick 23 players for his squad, and they were. Goalkeepers, three of them, Gordon Banks of Leicester City, Ron Springett, Sheffield Wednesday, Peter Bonetti of Chelsea, defenders, George Cohen, Fulham, Ray Wilson, Everton, Jack Charlton, Leeds United, Captain Bobby Moore from West Ham United, Jimmy Armfield of Blackpool, Jerry Byrne, Liverpool, Norman Hunter from Leeds United, in midfield, Nobby Styles from Manchester United, Alan Ball, Blackpool, Martin Peters from West Ham, Ron Flowers of Wolves, Ian Callaghan, Liverpool, George Easton of Arsenal, Bobby Charlton, Manchester United, and up front, Ramsey selected five strikers. Jimmy Greaves of Tottenham Hotspur, Jeff Hurst of West Ham, John Connolly of Manchester United, Terry Payne, Southampton, and Roger Hunt from Liverpool. Now, as I already mentioned, England, as hosts, didn't have to qualify, so that meant a lot of friendly games in between some home international championship games. These friendlies included a 1-0 away win over West Germany 
and a 2-0 win over Spain at the Bernabeu in 1965. There was another win over Germany in February of 1966 at Wembley. And then from the 26th of June to the 5th of July, England went on a tour of Scandinavia and Eastern Europe, beating Finland, Norway, Denmark and Poland before the tournament on home soil began on the 11th of July, where England were drawn in Group 1 alongside France, Mexico and Uruguay. And this is where we bring in Peter Woodman, who has some fond memories of the tournament. Now, I'm delighted to to welcome to the Three Lions podcast, uh, Tottenham and England fan, uh, Peter Woodman, who, who has memories of World Cup 1966. Hello there, Peter. Hi. How are you? Well, I'm I'm, I'm very well, thank you, and uh, very nice to talk to you. Ah, thank you for uh, for agreeing to to come on. Um, yeah, the the World Cup of 1966. It's one that um, <laughs> that every media outlet harps back to because that was the moment, wasn't it, in right. in England's time? And and you were there to witness it, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, it was the whole thing was tremendously exciting. You know, we you've got to remember there was very little live football on television in those days. The FA Cup final day was massive and you had the odd England international match on and things. And suddenly, 66, all the top players in the world were coming to England. The whole tournament was going to be in England. And uh, we had uh, a reasonable side. I don't think anybody apart from Alf Ramsey and the England players thought that we were actually going to win it. But we had the matches at Wembley. Now, my brother managed to get a uh, a seat a sort of world cup season ticket whereby oh. he was able to go to all the england matches at wembley england were going to play their first three at wembley whatever happened and then depending on how they'd got on in the group they uh, you saw this last summer with um with england england had to go off and play one in um in Italy, didn't they? That's right, Rome. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because they won that one, they were then able to play the one. Anyway, to cut a long story short, England played all six matches at Wembley. My brother went to all the matches. Wow. I was actually at school. I was 16 years old. My brother had left school. He was three years older than me. And England got to the final. And my uncle was a bookmaker who seemed to know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> He could get us. Uh, he could get tickets to the England Scotland match at Wembley, which in those days was even harder to get tickets for than the FA Cup finals. And anyway, with the whole country desperate for a ticket, my brother had one anyway. My uncle, the bookie, managed to get one for me and one for my father, his brother, and he didn't go because he was working, and uh-huh. so his wife went. My aunt went. So my my father and my aunt were up in the stands in the seats in the posh seats what, what game are my we brother, talking here is this sorry? the final sorry yeah this is the final yeah uh my brother was uh one end standing behind the goal yeah and i was at the other end i was at the jeff hurst crossbar end oh <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so my brother and i walked up wembley way together we got there about two hours early we didn't know what to wear because it was one minute was bucketing down with rain if you look at the pictures of the match one minute is raining next minute the sun's out yeah and uh anyway we it was just the most exciting day 
I mean, let's go back a, a little bit. What do you remember about the the build up to the tournament in in the country? Well, it was for the for the time it was huge. Yeah. Now it would probably be regarded as quite small. You know, it's it, everything is massive hype. No paper in those days, for example, would have a, a separate sports supplement. You'd have you know, news on the front and sport on the back. And yes. maybe they might have a picture of Bobby Charlton getting the winning goal in the semi-final on the front. But it was a huge TV occasion. All the matches were on. And that was something to 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 marvel at. But the winning of the World Cup and the actual staging of the World Cup in England was then, although there was huge excitement and huge interest, was nothing like the interest and the coverage and the excitement that you would have well, we had last summer and we had again in 96. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it just wasn't in 66. But the interest, though, was enormous in that the television audience for the final was massive, about 30 million. You had pretty much, that pretty much means virtually everybody was <laughs> in front of a television set. But the answer to your question shortly is that the interest was great, but nothing like it would be now. Yeah. I mean, I think you could almost say that there was a little bit of hype around it earlier on in in the year. What with the the stolen trophy? Do you remember that about that? Was, yes, I do. Um, amazingly, the the trophy got nicked <laughs> and was famously found by a dog called Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> And and uh, this was a fantastic story, and it was it you know uh, that was a tremendous amount of publicity about this. I think it probably also actually helped help with the general sort of awareness of people. Uh, typical British, they, they may not be interested in football, but they like dogs. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and this dog Pickles was sort of fated and was posed with the Jules Rimet trophy and everything. And it was it was a it was a lovely it was a lovely story. Now I think I think it probably helped publicize the um, the thing even more. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story. It's one that I've sort of looked into a little bit more. Uh, it's great. So yeah, those the group games for England. To start with, it was it was a, a nil nil against Uruguay, and I yeah, think it, it was it was pretty depressing. And also, Wembley was by uh, not by any means full up. I mean, really? I think they had about some, yeah. It was a Monday evening. I mean, the Queen came, opened the thing, hmm. and, and it was a pretty poor match. The Uruguay defended, and I think they were quite happy with the goalless draw. And England never really got going. I mean, they had quite a lot of possession. Never really looked like scoring. It was extremely poor match and the only good thing about it was that they um you know they got a point i mean the uruguayans were quite a strong side but they didn't really go for it at all mm-hmm. and it was very very defensive and there was a lot of gloom around i mean some of the writers were saying cracky if they think england are gonna you know if they're gonna return to this stadium in sort of you know a week on so or two weeks on saturday or whenever the final was uh, if they think they're going to win with this sort of performance you know they've got another thing coming and it was all it was all rather a a, a very low-key start to the tournament yeah England have got a a funny way of sort of starting tournaments like that I'm just thinking back to to 1990 I think there was a a nil-nil and in 96 there was a 1-1 yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, Uh, they I think um after that 
it was always the sort of thing was, well, we didn't start very well in 66 either. So it was always, and that didn't turn out too badly. So uh, I think, you know, sometimes at the beginning, you have to um, just get through the games, you know, get a point here or something, mm-hmm. or a, a one nil or something, you know, like that. But I think at the time, everyone, you know, football was pretty attacking in the 60s. It was just beginning to get a little, you had Leeds United to come up under Revy and they were pretty grimly defensive and pretty dirty as well. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of goals scored. You had a lot of top goal scorers, you know, who were big stars. And the idea that you sort of just play for a draw was, it, it was probably the 60s were the probably the last decade when it was real flat out attacking football, really. And it became a bit more pragmatic and practical, but it was a, a very slow start to the tournament. Yeah. You mentioned all these these big players and one of them was to uh to unfortunately get injured in the in the group stages. We we beat Mexico 2-0 and then beat France 2-0, but but that particular big player was was Jimmy Greaves who was one of England's sort of he was the man, wasn't he? And he was I think tipped to be to have a have an excellent tournament, but unfortunately, yeah. I mean, Jimmy was. I mean, obviously, being a Spurs fan, you know, Jimmy was very much my idol. You know, I'm. I mean, I was 16 and he was 26. You know, I remember him signing. I just couldn't believe we'd got wow. Jimmy Green because he burst onto the scene uh, in the late fifties. Uh, you know, and there was this 17 year old boy banging him in left, right, and centre, and he quickly became, you know, the most famous player in England. And him playing alongside Bobby Charlton and you had Bobby Moore and you had Gordon Banks. We had three or four great players. And Jimmy was going to win the World Cup for England. And uh, he'd had hepatitis and had missed from about November up, right up to about January. He, When he came back in early 66, he looked a bit gaunt and a bit right. thin. And I don't think he was really that fully fit. He incidentally was convinced that England were going to win it. Was it? And he, that's, yeah, I mean, he he thought that the squad was good and that Ramsey was a good manager, and he he just he said he he said afterwards and and has since said I was absolutely convinced we'd win the tournament. So obviously it was a big disappointment for him, for him to get a really nasty gash. Yeah, uh, it was a pretty nasty injury against France. I think it was one of the French guys hacked him down, and um, he and so he was out uh, after the French game. So even though England had progressed through the group then I imagine the the feeling in the country maybe have been a little bit muted I guess similar to the Uruguay game because of this injury was it yeah I mean also the the performances have been far from sparkling I mean the Mexico match started and remember at this point England had played about two hours it had an hour and a half against Uruguay which had been pretty sterile stuff and then the first half an hour against uh, Mexico again Mexico got tremendous number of people behind the ball and the you know, England had a lot of possession. And then I remember they broke up an attack and Bobby Charlton got the ball because I had to watch all the early games on the um, on the telly. At, yeah. We were away at boarding school. And I remember shouting, quick, break, break, you know, don't hang around. <laughs> and Bobby went beetling off with it and sort of started weaving in that wonderful way of his. He's sort of the weaving his, his way around. And suddenly it, he later said, I thought, well, if I got anywhere near the goal, I'd I'd have a go. I'd have a, a, of course, he let fly with this amazing shot. And in, remember, at this point, England hadn't scored and it just flew into the top corner. And I think the whole nation suddenly thought, oh, finally, we've got yeah. going. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were pretty much okay after that. And then they got another one at the end and um, in the second half, and it was two nothing. But it hadn't been a great game. And then we played France, and that really wasn't a great game. 
except there was an incident with Nobby Styles did a terrible foul on one of the French guys. <laughs> and afterwards, they wanted Ramsey to drop um, yes, Styles. I read about that. It was, a, it was quite a nasty foul. And um, my brother said that one of the little French guys in the crowd <laughs> had leapt up at this point when uh, and pointed at Styles and said, L'assassin! <laughs> Assassin! You know? Oh! Assassin! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the, some of the FA people wanted um, Alf Ramsey to drop stars for this really this tackle, but um, he said he must be joking. And because uh, he, he used to drop his, he used to he had elocution lessons, Alf, but he used to still drop his G's. He, oh, he right. still hadn't remembered. He was supposed. He must be joking. <laughs> he and of course, it, uh, he he wasn't going to drop him. No, he kind but, of uh, he he stood firm there, didn't he? Oh yeah, he says it's no way. He says you you can get rid of me if you are going to mean I you know you're going to start picking the team or something. So they had the powers that be had to back down. Yeah. Well, the the, the quarter final, England had progressed through that group stage. It got to the quarter final. I guess this was probably although I don't think there'd been any issues in the world with Argentina. I don't think back then this this was probably a real first meeting between the two, would it? And it it was a bit bit spicy. Uh, no, the sides had met, but I mean, Argentina were regarded as a pretty good side, and right. I, I thought we'd lose. And I wasn't. This was the only game I didn't actually get to see live because we were all at school. It was a, quite a nice hot Saturday afternoon, and this would have been around about a couple of weeks before the final. I'd been away going round. They all took us round one of the universities that we might have been attending eventually when we left school. So we actually went to Brighton, uh, Sussex University. And I remember coming back, and we didn't even, uh, for some reason, we didn't even take the radio or anything. I had no idea what the school was. I, oh, I mean, now we've been, I know. And I saw one of the masters driving up the, the, when we got back to the school, one of the masters was in his car, and I sort of hailed him and stopped him. And I thought, well, obviously, he's, he, you know, he'll know what's happened in the match. I thought, this is where I hear that England have gone out of the World Cup, you see. And I said, oh, how did they get on? He said, oh, they won 1 0. And I was absolutely ecstatic, you yeah. know. And of course, then later we found out that the Argentinian, huge Argentinian captain Ratin, had been sent off in this amazing incident quite early on in the match. And then Jeff Hurst had come in for Jimmy Greaves, and he headed the winning goal. Uh, there was the famous picture of Ramsey tugging at uh, George Cohen, wanted to swap his shirt with the Argentinian, and there's a huge picture of the shirt half off and Ramsey. <laughs> tugging at the shirt to prevent uh he, he and he later got into a bit of trouble and of course this may have led to the <laughs> usual bust up between argentina and england he described the argentinian players as animals yeah so that didn't go down very well because they they were quite dirty there were quite a lot of bad fouls but england again toiled in the sun it was a very hot day it was only a late goal from um from hurst that uh, put England through. I don't know what would have happened. Presumably it would have been extra time, I guess, but luckily they were spared that. Yeah. And England yeah. won. Yeah, they won there, and they were through to the, the semi-finals Semi. against Portugal and uh, and a certain Eusebio, wasn't it? I mean, Portugal over the years have had a, had some very good players, but uh, Eusebio certainly up there. Well, Eusebio, I'd first come across him. He um, Because Spurs first venture into the European Cup, the Champions League now, and the, the Europe. European Cup in those days, uh, they uh, Tottenham had been drawn Benfica, and okay. everyone was raving about this nineteen-year-old uh, boy. This was nineteen sixty-two, before the World Cup. This boy Eusebio, who's supposed to be the next big thing, 
So I'd, I'd got to know the name. And of course, they'd beaten Spurs over two legs and gone on to win the European Cup. And he'd been the, he'd been the star of the tournament. North Korea, where they sort of surprise packet, they'd sensationally knocked Italy out. Yeah, Italian- I read about that. What was the sort of the reaction across the country to, to North Korea? Because I think that was well, at Goodison, wasn't it? Uh, well, they beat Italy at Ayrson Park, Middlesbrough's oh, okay. old ground. They were very much fated up there. They were known as the Diddy Men because they were all little tiny little guys. <laughs> and they were virtually sort of adopted by the Northeast. And oh. uh, they got through to the, it was a huge shock. I mean, the Italians went home to be pelted with tomatoes or something when they <laughs> arrived at the airport because they were much favoured and they had a very strong side. I mean, four years later, they got to the World Cup final. But they, they, uh, they sensationally lost to North Korea and a famous player called Pak Do Ik. Right. <laughs> was the winning, scored the winning goal and the place went crazy and they managed to hold on and beat Italy and it knocked Italy out. So Portugal with Eusebio, had, Portugal had knocked Brazil out wow. and Eusebio had scored a fantastic goal which got David Coleman Absolutely. In a, he said, oh, have you ever seen anything like that? He, uh, Eusebio got the ball uh, crossed. Um, he took the corner kick himself and the ball rebounded to him and he and he sort of smashed it in from almost on the byline. Okay. Um, and it was, uh, I remember, uh, I remember watching this thinking, wow. <laughs> and uh, David Conwell, who was doing the commentary, was uh, getting very excited about this. Simoš, bending one for Torres. Eusebio, oh my word, have you ever seen anything like that? And anyway, so they played, they played um, North Korea in the quarterfinal and they played that, that was at Goodison. And after about 25 minutes uh, playing totally fearlessly, North Korea gone 3-0 up, playing the most amazing football and the crowd were just going mad on this yeah. and you could almost see Eusebio sort of saying right enough of this nonsense <laughs> and he, he scored and he picked the ball out of the net and was bouncing come on back and he put placed it on the centre circle said come on guys and then he scored again then he scored again then he scored he basically rubbed out the, the deficit completely and, and scored the first four goals and Portugal went on to win 5-3 oh right so, 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 so hype around him I guess was uh was quite well, big coming Dora, in, yeah. yeah, coming into yeah. this this semi final. Oh yeah, the semi final was seen certainly as England's hardest match up to that point. It was a wonderful match. I think the first foul came after twenty two minutes. Really, and um, yeah, it was just beautiful football. England probably that was probably England's best performance. The final was tense stuff. Yeah. Obviously, everyone remembers the final, but the, the Portugal game was a really good game of football. And they put Nobby Styles on Eusebio, and he kept him pretty quiet, actually. And he was, Bobby Charlton said that Nobby had this amazing ability. He said he seemed to be able to sense and snuff out danger. You know, he seemed to get himself into position to where it was the most dangerous thing, you know, and he'd snuff out the danger. I say after this, this very sort of clean start to the match, um, I think they put, I think that Roger Hunt was put through. And the goalie slid out and sort of had to sort of push it away with his feet. And, of course, was miles out of his goal. And Bobby Charlton just came up and just passed 
just passed the ball into the into the goal. Right. He didn't sort of smash it or anything. He knew that if he could just get it on target, it was going to go in. So he he just cleverly passed the ball into the goal from outside the penalty area. Didn't try a f- clever shot or anything. Nothing. And fancy. that was one nothing. Right. And that was one nil. And and the, it was a really good game. I mean, England England weren't really hanging on. They what was probably at that point the most exciting moment of the whole thing, which had the whole country getting incredibly excited, was with with them one nil up and into the well into the second half. Um, Hurst sort of got a good through ball and was able to control it, and he teed it up for Charlton, and he just sort of said, "Go on, Bobby, bury it," and Charlton just hit it like a bloody rocket. And the whole place went completely crazy. We were all going mad. I was watching it at school, and we were all going crazy. Charlton was such an incredibly exciting player, (laughs) you know, and his bald head at this stage, you know, because the early stuff with Charlton, he's still got his hair, but by this time, it it made him even more recognisable all around the world. If you you go to somewhere in the world and say, oh, Bobby Charlton, you know, oh, yeah, it's England, Bobby Charlton, and everybody would everybody would know who, who you were talking yeah. about. And so that, so that was a very, very exciting moment. And and then just to make it a little bit more tense, Portugal got one back right at the end, and uh, it was a penalty, and Eusebio scored. Right. And, uh, and you thought, oh, my God, surely they're not going to get a last in that England were able to fairly comfortably hold out. And yeah. I can still remember that headline in the uh, the story in the daily telegraph the next day i think england passed thankfully into the final oh right so there's a bit of a sigh of relief across the country yeah i mean even after we beat argentina i don't think people thought we were necessarily going to win it they probably thought well it's nice that we've got to the semi but i think once you got to the final you really start getting very excited i think a lot of people thought we might lose to argentina and also that we might lose to to portugal so did people think yeah. we would lose to West Germany? Oh, yes. I can remember Joe Mercer, who was the former Arsenal and uh, Manchester City manager and Arsenal player. Joe Mercer, famous uh, Manchester City manager when they started, he started emerging from the shadows of Manchester United. He, um, he, he said that his, his, he was asked on the night before the final, um, uh, who are you going to go for then, Joe? He says, well, my... My head says Germany, West Germany, and my heart says England. I said I've never really done very much with my head, so I'm going to have to go with. I'm going to have to go with England. I, I thought that was quite heartening, actually. Yeah. Um, Joe Mercer was uh, to, to go on and be sort of England temporary manager after Alf Ramsey departed, wasn't he? I think he was. I think you're right, actually. And that was before um, Ron Greenwood took over, I think, wasn't it? In the Is it Ron Greenwood or Don Revy? I, I don't. Oh, oh, Don Revy. Don Revy took over. Maybe Joe Mercer just stepped in as a temporary measure. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, the Germans have been pretty impressive, and they had this very young boy called no one had ever heard of before, or at least I hadn't heard of, because this a young boy, twenty years old, Franz Beckenbauer, <laughs> and he, he, he was, you know, he looked really good. I remember they what, they beat Switzerland five nothing at Hillsborough. Um, they had a blonde boy up front called ha- Helmut Haller, and he he was. Um, I mean, they, they they looked very dangerous. They had a tremendous left winger called Emmerich. Their veteran Uwe Zeller at centre forward, who was the captain. The German fans didn't shout for Germany. They just went Uwe Uwe. This was oh, this right. Uwe Zeller. He'd actually he was playing in his third World Cup. Zeller, okay. the German captain, and went on to play again in Mexico in 1970. He played in four World Cups wow. and was still. Goals. He and Gert Muller, who sadly died fairly recently, Gert Muller. He and Muller were the big stars for still doing the big stars for Germany in 1970. So they they had a very strong side. I can still 
you know, I, I could probably rattle. I, I won't try it now, but I could probably rattle off most of the team. I mean, they had they had some very very good players, and it was a very strong German side. I think if they hadn't been playing England effectively, England away, because yeah. I mean, obviously it had to be staged somewhere, and England were effectively the home side. You know, I think they probably would have won. Right. Were there a, a lot of German supporters that came over for? Oh for yeah, I reckon. I mean, they reckon there were about fifteen thousand. Was there? Uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, they would have obviously had some who were probably, you know, British based. But I think no, they because they'd all come over for the. I think people bought packages and things and come over for the World Cup. So a lot of these guys would have been up with them at Hillsborough, and. They they had their matches in Sheffield, I think um, okay. the, the Germans. They again they were all these countries. They all stayed in hotels and went into the local villages. Various places adopted the teams. It was right. all quite sort of matey and jolly and things. And I think they probably put on special German food in some of the shops and things just to make them feel at home. I know the Germans had a good reception. Pretty much all the countries had good receptions where they were, and it was very exciting for a lot of people. You know, as I say, there wasn't. All the matches were on the, the on the telly, so everybody could watch all the games. You know, and it was it was terrific stuff. Was, but was no, no, they had a lot of a lot of support. Okay, well, was there no? I, I don't want to really hark back to I guess twenty years previous, but was there no animosity with with Germany back then? Only I think in a sort of jokey sort of way. You know, let's right. you know we beat them in the war, let's win them in the world, beat them in the World Cup thing. Uh, no, not really. I mean, I was born in 1950, and we were sort of, we were the sort of baby boomer, post-war generation of, of children. And um, but no, I don't think there was. No, I don't think there was. I mean, it, there, there was. I don't know. Maybe if it had been about ten years earlier, it might have been. Hmm. Also, a lot of the um, a lot of the anti-German feeling had been dissipated by Bert Troutman, who was the legendary Manchester City goalkeeper. Yes. Troutman was actually a German paratrooper and he was a prisoner of war over here. And after the war, he stayed on and he signed up for St. Helens, more famous for their rugby football than their association football. And he got signed by Manchester City. And he was amazing. I mean, I think probably that if you think, for example, of Peter Schmeichel and then Casper, a big blonde goalkeeper, you know, hurling himself around he was incredibly spectacular i'm not sure goalkeeping was that strong you'd go to a game in the in the 50s and if your team won four or five no probably at least one of the goals was a bit of a a goalkeeping howler anyway this guy troutman uh he got a lot of hate mail to start with and stuff like that and people wouldn't want to watch the matches and all that but he was so good he became a sort of adopted son of manchester and i think it did help perhaps improve Anglo-German relations. So I don't think there was any problem in 66 anyway. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's good to hear. So, yeah, let's let's move on to the final. You, you briefly um, mentioned it at the beginning. Um, what was it like coming out? Or, or how did you get there? Because nowadays I, I go to Wembley, I get there on the train, I come out at the, the top and walk down Wembley Way. What, what was it like back then? Well, although Wembley's changed a lot, all the buildings now are incredible. Uh, but you've still got that long, nice walk down to the stadium. And although it's a different stadium now, you've still got the stadium at the end and it sort of rises up above. You know? yeah. And it always looks from the train as if the, 
stadium is right on top of the but it's quite a walk actually isn't it, mm. it, it from the train you think oh well, you know it's going to be a short walk and it's a fun walk i mean my brother and i we thought we'd get there nice and early my brother told me to hide my ticket in case a tout grabbed it oh. he didn't want me he didn't want me, wa- he didn't want me waving the ticket around and um so we got there about one o'clock and of course the match kicked off at three and i think they let they, well, yeah we were let in all right because we then had to say goodbye to each other uh, because yeah, right. he was going yeah. one end and I was going the other end. Uh, we had quite a lot of German fans around us. It was all very matey and, you know, and stuff. They made a lot of noise. Um, they all had their colours and everything. The big news, of course, we all were waiting for was to see whether Jimmy was going to get, Jimmy Greaves was going to get back in the side because yeah. he he was fully fit now. They preferred Hurst for the semi. And, of course, Hurst got the winning goal. He played quite well against Portugal. And, of course, Ramsey had to make the decision whether he was going to play. I think he told Hurst the night before, he says, Jeffrey, you're going to be playing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, Alf. Because <laughs> there was no think substitutes back then, was there? No. Mm. No, no. And um, no, uh, no, no subs. They'd, they'd introduced one sub in the Football League the previous season. But you could only bring him on if somebody was injured. I see. And it was only when people sort of suddenly discovered they'd got some rather sort of nasty injury and they sneaked them off that they said, well, we, we've got to stop this sham. You know, you can bring people on whether they're injured or, you know, or yeah. you can make tactical, tacticals. No, there were no subs. And um, Jimmy and all the rest of the squad, because remember there were 22 in the squad, they all watched um, fully clothed, you know, not, not, not in any kit or anything, mm. um, you know, or behind the bench. You, so... That was the big news. I mean, obviously, I was hoping that Jimmy would play. But, you know, the news came and I thought, oh, well, I'm just going to have to get on without him. And because, you know, you wanted England to win and, uh, you know, it was disappointing for him. And you, you realised he was going to be absolutely devastated. He never really got over it, you know. No, I know. And, uh, you know, missing out on the World Cup final. And also, as I said, he's, one of the reasons was he was absolutely sure England would win. It was a huge disappointment. Yeah, for him. But anyway, we do. Would you, so they announced the teams, and uh, this was incidentally the first time that we'd had this sort of squad thing. Normally, you know, you'd go to see an England Scotland match, and they'd announce the teams the week before, so that when you got the program on the day, and I've still got some of these old programs, the whole team was there, and of course there were no subs, so that yes. that lot would play. And then suddenly, with the World Cup, you'd, if you had a program, it would have. 22, a bit like it is now, where you had the whole squad and then they read out the numbers. You only don't know who's going to play until a, you know, half an hour or an hour before the match. Yeah. So with the World Cup, they, they and also the numbers were different. Um, none of this 1 to 11 stuff. I mean, we had to get used to seeing Martin Peters wearing 16. You thought, well, what, what's happening? It, it took a while to get to know because you'd see people in the various shirts. You'd almost get to see Bobby. I mean, the thing was because Peters, didn't start the tournament, so he wasn't one to eleven. So they made him number sixteen. I think oh. Hurst may have been twenty-two or something. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but um, I know I know Martin Peters had maybe for the final. I, I'm not sure that maybe they reverted to one to eleven for the final. But I remember seeing Martin Peters with sixteen on his back. I dare say you can dig out some film and, I, and yeah. see what numbers they were actually wearing. I think Bobby Charlton was nine anyway. So Jeff, Jeff Hurst was was ten, I believe, wasn't he? Yeah, I think you're right. I think Jeff Hurst was 10. Yeah. Jimmy was probably eight originally, I expect. But, um, and that was when everyone got used to the fact that there could be squad numbers that, you know, numbers that are above 11, you know. Mm. 
God, well, imagine the thoughts back then of, of players having their surname on their shirts as well. Oh gosh, yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that 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 hadn't come in yet. No, no. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, talking shirts. England were were in red that day, weren't they? Famously, yeah. I think we, I think they lost a toss. I think. Um, so the Germans, because obviously the Germans tended to wear white as well, mm. and so England, um, England were in red. Uh, I don't think anybody had any red flags to wave. If you see films sometimes that have, I saw a recent reenactment film and. They had the people around the country where waving red flags and things, but in fact nobody knew until the last minute. England, that's a it's an anachronism. It didn't actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, England were in red. England were in red. So I've watched the the game since, and and England were were two one up until that until that the, the last minute, weren't they? And and yeah, if you tell I mean, me that um, you were at the end that Jeff Hurst hit the bar at. You were also at the, the, end, the German equaliser. Yes. Yeah. Well, because we were all, uh, you know, we were counting the minutes down, and um, they got this free kick, and a, a lot of us didn't think that it was Jack Charlton was. Charlton went to try and head the ball over the German player who made a back for him, and he, it's always a difficult one for the referee. This did did the player make a back for the other player, and it's a foul, or did the other player lean? over the other player in which gets as far. Anyway, we thought he got it wrong. And and England lined up the wall and everything, and it was just outside the penalty here. And I think everybody around us thought, oh, God, the Germans are going to equalise. Yeah. And the ball came in. It was a bit of a shout for handball, and the ball bobbled across. And, oh, and they scored. And we yeah. thought, oh, no. oh God. And it was that, practically the la- it was practically the last kick. They just about had time to kick off England, and the referee blew for full time, and they had to go into into extra time. And it had been a gut wrenching afternoon. And you thought, oh, I'm not sure I can take another half an hour. Nowadays, I think it would have finished me off. I mean, you, you know, you, there's so much only so much emotion you can go through in your life when you're 16 years old. You. And even then, I thought it was just going to be a bit of a problem. But I, at least I thought, well, I would just have to manage it. Yeah, because England had been the better team, I, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, they had. I mean, from a spectacle point of view, is that the night before, or the morning of the match, or the night before, Alf Rams had given everyone their orders. And he said to Bobby Charlton, I want you to look after Beckenbauer. And Charlton thought, Charlton said, OK. But in fact, he was thinking, oh, God, I've got to do a marking job. Here's the World Cup final. But you see, everybody was into the sort of esprit de corps, the sort of team spirit and everybody sort of fighting for each other. And he said, well, if Alf wants me to. Also, I think they had huge faith in Ramsey. Yeah. And Charlton thought, Charlton thought deep down, oh, you know, I've got to do a marking job. You know, it's not exactly... <laughs> This is the World Cup final, you know, at Wembley. I got to do a marking job. It's not great, but I'll do it. Alf's asked me to do this. He thinks this is, I think, the best way of winning the match is to, to you to sit on Beckenbauer, and uh, so he did it. And of course, what he didn't know was the Germans had asked Beckenbauer to sit on Charlton. So of course, <laughs> neither of them, neither of them did very much in the match. You see, Bobby towards the end, England should actually have wrapped it up. They broke through with about ten minutes to go, and it was, it was three on one, and. The ball, the final ball through to Bobby was played poorly and slightly in front of him, and he sort of whacked at it and he went wide. But they should have wrapped it up. But you, you saw very little. Obviously, the Germans had to push forward because they were goal down. It's probably, probably they told Beckenbauer, "Don't worry about Charlton. Now we've got to try and score here." So Bobby could have won the match, I think. 
and it would have been a different sort of story altogether. But you know, they had yeah, England had been the better side. There wasn't an awful lot of goal mouth action. It was technically very good. If you look at the match, um, there's quite a lot of people dribbling around and then losing position. There wasn't the sort of tip tap passing that you tend to get. But really, I think England held Germany pretty well. Yeah. I mean, they'd gone a goal down mainly due to a mistake. Ray Wilson, the fullback, had an immaculate World Cup and was a really world-class performer. And he 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 put in a, quite a poor defensive header, which went straight to Helmut Hallow, who turned and swiveled and shot first time. And West Germany took the lead. But the good thing was that England equalised quite quickly, so they weren't behind for very long. And that was down our end. And Jeff Hurst headed in. It was a sort of West Ham free kick. Bobby Moore knew exactly where Hurst was going to be. And um, he grabbed the ball. He was fouled himself. And he grabbed the ball, put it down, took the kick. And um, Hurst had it in the net before the Germans knew what was going on. And right. that was 1-1. So it a, rather cancelled out the early goal. And But when Peter scored with um, about 10, 15 minutes to go, we thought, well, that's it. We're going to... I didn't think the Germans... Until that very last free kick, I didn't think the Germans were going to get back into it. Yeah. The the free kick was sort of, you know, you thought, well, disputed free kick, right on the edge, minute to go. Ooh, you know, what can go wrong? Everything, you know. Yeah. And they scored. They scored. Yeah. I mean, ex- extra time, uh, again, I've seen the footage where Alf Ramsey sort of instructed his players to stand, didn't they? And he sort of pointed over to the, yeah. the Germans yeah. who were sitting on yeah. the floor. They were they were crackered. That's right. That's right. Um, it was, uh, I think the sun had come out. We'd, we'd had some pretty strange weather. It was quite showery at the time. So the sun had come out. It was gruelling playing at Wembley anyway. People played on awful pitches. Then they got onto Wembley and there was the lush grass and everything. It was really gruelling stuff. And one or two of the England players were sort of slumping a bit. And Ramsey said, get up. He says, look at the Germans. They're dead. And the Germans were all absolutely flat out. He says, now you've won it once. Now go and win it again. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> famously. Great thing to say, you know. And really, to be quite honest, England were much the better side. Alan Ball, in the, particularly in extra time, just ran his socks off. And he had the most magnificent game. He was only 20 years old. Nobody knew much about this boy. He was... He played for Blackpool, and uh, he, he, again, wasn't one of the guys who started the tournament. If you look who played in the early matches, they used quite a lot of the, of the 22 players. Ball wasn't one of the guys that everyone thought was going to be you know, one of the big stars. And he was up against uh, Schnellinger, the um, German left-back. He was a world-class player. And, uh, you know, he took him for a merry old ride during the afternoon. And, um, I mean, it was his run. He got a long ball ahead of him, and he went racing after it. He said afterwards, "I wasn't sure I was going to get there," <laughs> and he he whacked it over. And I think Wilson had said, "Look at ball running his socks off or something," <laughs> you know. And he 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 whacked it over to Jeff Hurst, who sort of trapped it, turned, and did the famous shot against the underside of the bar. Yeah, I go on. Well, what what were your feelings then? What what did you see? Well, I mean, we were behind the goal, and we had a very I mean, Roger Hunt turned away straight away and, and and didn't even bother to try and get knock it. The ball rebounded up and one of the German guys put it off for a corner. And the linesman really hadn't got up with the play and gave it from where he was. And I've always thought that it... it I've never seen anything that suggested it was definitely over the line. No, no. And, and, and of course, the Germans always say, oh, of course, you know, it's not over the line and sneaky British types and all this. But... <laughs> But um, I think the thing was, though, that England deserved to be ahead. Mm. And then, of course, right at the end, 
it, it wasn't the winning goal because her scores again at the end. So uh, that must have been a great view. If you were behind the goal there and you must have been looking down Wembley and, and seeing Hurst's back and, and well, it seeing... was. I tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll take you through it. I mean, as soon as England scored, as soon as the Jeff Hurst the crossbar goal was allowed, they over the over the line goal. Or was it over the line goal? Was it? I, I thought, oh my God, we're three two up. I've got to go through all this agony again. <laughs> Can they hang on? Because this, because yeah. um, this was in the first period of extra time, so there was still about twenty minutes to go. You know, the first period, and then the whole of the second period of extra time. And I thought, oh God, I can't go through all this again. Anyway, and of course, there was no further score until we can remember the the ball was coming into the England box, and Bobby Moore very coolly sort of chested it down and dribbled it out of the box. And we could see that the referee was sort of looking at his watch. So we were all yelling, just launch it, just... We thought, wait a minute, if he just whacks it into the stand, the referee would probably blow up and that would be full time, you see. But he wasn't having any of it, uh, Bobby Moore. He'd spotted Hurst. I think he plays him through. I think Hurst is actually in his own half, so he can't be offside. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, he was onside anyway. And we were all saying, yeah, just whack it, just whack it. And he was sort of waited. And he saw that Hurst was in bags of room and he, he whacks it up for Jeff Hurst. And Hurst quite sort of almost wearily sort of gets the ball down and trudges off with it. And Hurst said later, my plan was I'd aim for the goal, but I'd hit it as hard as I possibly could. So if I missed... <laughs> The ball would disappear off. He knew, obviously, the yeah. ball would disappear yeah. off, and they take such a long time getting the ball back that by the time they took the goal kick, that was probably going to be the last kick. You see, if you watch, the pitch is a bit cut up because it had rained, and the ball actually bobbles up just before he hits it. But he had such a terrific shot at this; the ball just, just, just absolutely Arrowed, cannons up it? the top of the goal. Yeah, you know, and it is now sort of thing. You know, with um, with Wilson, I'm almost saying it uh, as he shot. You know even before the ball hit the top of the net. Also, we went absolutely crazy. But somehow we also knew that the not, not only had the referee, I don't know how we knew this, but somehow you knew that the goal had stood and that he'd then blown up for, for full time. I don't know how we knew that, because he might have blown up as he was running through, because, you know, the crowd were going crazy. And, and there's this huge roar went up. And um, and then, of course, they, you know, they were, next minute they were up getting the cup and going around yeah. the ground with it. Oh. And... I came out and I've only been to about two or three football matches in my life where my ears were ringing. Really? Yeah, the, the, you get a sort of, you actually have a sort of, sort of, mm. <laughs> so, uh, people who have tinnitus have this sort of thing all the time, but my ears were ringing. It's happened a couple of times with Spurs matches and things, but you know, you get 90,000 people all yelling their heads off and you come out of the ground and my ears were actually ringing. <laughs> it was incredible. So, I mean, what you must have met up with your brother after the, after yeah, the well, game. Yeah, and... we, we, um, we, we ended up, I think we both left, I think most of the crowd didn't want to go. We thought, oh, we and beat the rush. So we got down Wembley Way and we actually met him on the station. Oh, right. The, yeah, and he'd come. And then we got back because we'd come from Ickenham. I think we got on at, um, yeah, we got got on at Ickenham Station and then you go to Wembley Park, you see, and then walk, walk down. And coming back, we... Um, we we got to Rastip Station and we could see the bus that we needed in the station waiting. And so we got off there at, rather than at Ickenham, got on the 223 bus, got back, and we were back by about half past five or something. Really? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, cool. we got back very, very that now. There, was no, there was no real scrum going down Wembley Way like there can be after the match. 
because I think we 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 obviously thought, well, we'll try and get beat the rush a bit, and um, I think people just stayed in the stadium, you know, and uh, and so we were home at half past five, and then of course nowadays you'd be watching it all again on video and things and recordings, and we had to stay up till about. I was very tired, and we'd had to stay up till about ten o'clock, and they had a they had all the a sort of match of the day, right, and they had it all filmed from. The people were people were jumping into the fountains in um, Piccadilly, you know, at uh, the, the Piccadilly Circus, and the, the England guys were staying at a hotel, and the hotel was besieged by fans and everything. And then we watched it all over again. Oh, great stuff! Great stuff, and they yeah, sadly never to have been repeated as yet. No, although <laughs> we came, uh, I think we came mighty close with the um, the Euros. Yeah, and uh, I think. In some ways, it's harder now because I think you've got more good teams. Yeah. You know, um, also the World Cup now. There was only sixteen teams then. In remember, you and you played. Also, you play more matches now. England had six matches. You know, the the, the three group matches, quarters, semi, final, sixteen. So that you see, there's far more now top European sides that can make it. There was only a limit to how many European sides could make it. You know, yeah. um, and because they try to get it. Because it's a World Cup, I try. You know, you have representation from other areas. It, it, it's not getting any easier. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's uh, it's been absolutely wonderful to uh, to listen to those to those memories and anecdotes that uh, you've got there. So, uh, no, I've, I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much. Oh, wow. Really enjoyed that. My thanks go to Peter Woodman for his time and his memories, bringing it all alive for us. And for the vast majority of us, we can only go on word of mouth and grainy footage to experience England's finest hour. Although it has to be said, with the help of technology, that footage perhaps isn't so grainy now. Now, we are months away from the Qatar World Cup, where Gareth Southgate hopes to be in our Frams's shoes. Harry Kane hopes to emulate Bobby Moore and thousands of England fans up and down the country wanting to be where Peter Woodman was all those years ago, at this time in the sandy surroundings of Doha. This has been the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this has been the 1966 episode in our World Cup series. The heats and humidity of Mexico would be next in 1970. Would England retain their trophy? Join me next time as I once again speak with an England fan who saw it with their own eyes. And I hope you can join me for it. So until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.